Thank you, Andis, for uh, the prayer. And the, uh, I think you missed one word, though. Clearly, faithfully, and loudly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, you might have all noticed that the microphone is slightly different today. Uh, the voices are coming from there. It's, it's for me. <laughs> okay. So I want to I start um, uh, my sermon with, with a statistic I read recently. Um, it's in a book called Family Driven Faith, and uh, it's a book about Christian family life and parenting, and we're reading it for obvious reasons. And uh, one of the things that the author advises in, in, in one of his chapters is to train yourself and your children to have a biblical worldview. And uh, maybe some of you are wondering what a worldview means. And uh, it simply means how you perceive the world around you, how you perceive God, how you perceive Satan, uh, what do you think of moral values, where do you get them from, how do you apply it to different things in life, and, and uh, so on. And uh, obviously, your worldview affects how you function in life, how you function in society, and uh, it has a huge impact on society, even in church. Our pastor's worldview would greatly affect how, how the church runs. So uh, the study that was quoted uh, in, in, in the book, uh, it talks about how many Christians, what percentage of Christians have a biblical worldview. Does anyone want to take a guess? What percentage? Evangelical Protestant Christians. 50%. 20%. Now this number might be very shocking. The 50%, it is only applicable for pastors in churches. Only 50% of pastors have a biblical worldview. And um, as far as Christians are concerned, only 8% have a biblical worldview. And that is, that is evangelical Protestants. If you go to other denominations, the number goes half of that, and half of that, it's worse. And, uh, you know, one, one might think that uh, being a Christian and having a Christian biblical worldview is, is a normal thing, but it uh, seems to be that it's not. And I think there are several reasons for people not having a biblical worldview while professing to be Christians. Um, we, could, we could name a few, lack of biblical knowledge, cherry-picking from the Bible, making your own religion out of the Bible, and so on. But uh, today I want to focus on what the psalmist Asaph focuses on. I think he is talking about one of the reasons why there's only 8%. And uh, I'm going to call that reason our envy of the wicked. And uh, we'll look into that today. So uh, just before I start, um, you might have noticed that this psalm was quite different in, in its structure. It doesn't look like a song. It's more about questioning and uh, the, the author's struggle with, with facing this question. And uh, this, this, these types of psalms, they're called wisdom psalms. And they give us some sort of wisdom. And uh, Asaph here, he was a worship leader appointed by David to lead worship in the tabernacle. So uh, let's look at what Asaph struggles with. So um, the first three verses. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So Asaph's problem is clear here. He understands and uh, more so, he even witnesses to the fact that God is good. He says, truly, God is good. And uh, 
biblical authors will often use the word truly only if they have an experience of this thing. They're not just stating um, something that they know from someone else. They're giving first-hand experience. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But at the same time, he also sees that the wicked are prospering. And uh, because of this, he says he almost stumbled and slipped. And uh, I want to emphasize that uh, he already was envious of the arrogant. Right? He, he doesn't say, I was almost envying. He says, I was envious. And uh, he also contrasts himself to the pure in heart. God is good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, I almost stumble. That's what he says. So I think the stumbling and slipping away is a far more serious sin uh, as compared to his envy of, of the wicked. And uh, I think what he intends to say is that uh, he wanted to depart from God. It was, it was that serious. He wanted to give away his birthright as an Israelite, as a child of God, because of his envy. So in the next few verses, he, he struggles with uh, putting together God's goodness and the prosperity of the wicked. And I say struggles because he, he can observe that they're having a great, uh, great life. They're having their best lives now. But he also understands their wickedness. So uh, take a look at uh, verses 4 and 5. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. So there that he finds attractive. But then in verses 6 to 9, he says, Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. So it seems like he finds the actions disgusting, but their, but their lives themselves he observes to be attractive. And uh, he goes as far as saying in their arrogance, they're, they're extremely arrogant, that they would even say, what does God know? God, God does not have any knowledge. There is no knowledge in the most time. But, but look at the shocking conclusion that he comes to after making all these observations. In verses 13 and 14, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So it's really shocking that a verse in the Bible uh, says that. And that to a worship leader in, in God's tabernacle would say, In vain have I been, have I been good. I've been trying to live a good life in vain. But I think uh, it is because of God's mercy that he has allowed Asaph to go through this and write this, this psalm of wisdom for us. Uh, we, because we can easily relate to Asaph's problem. And uh, we will look through that quickly. God knows, uh, God knows that we think this, and he doesn't like that we think this, but he sympathizes with us thinking that way. And uh, because of our weaknesses and because of his mercy, he has given his wisdom on this matter. So let's, let's think about it. Um, take those verses uh, 6 to 9 and uh, uh, just consider how often do we apply this to politicians, right? Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. So um, do, we, do we then also envy their prosperity? 
I would say we do. I mean, um, where we we don't necessarily think that we should become politicians to make money, but the idea of prosperity and the easy life entices all of us. And uh, I, I just want to uh, help you consider some smaller evil deeds, if, if we can call it that, like maybe something silly as cheating in an exam, or maybe something as big as evading tax and, and bribing officials in the government. So how, how would we justify these actions? And uh, here are some of, some of um, the things that I thought of. So while everyone's doing it, that is one thing that I've heard a lot of people say. Uh, I myself have said it. Everyone does it, so you know nothing's nothing's wrong if I do it as well. And that that actually comes very close to um, the verses thirteen and fourteen. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. And another one is uh, it doesn't harm anyone. Nobody's going to be harmed. Uh, I'm just going to do this, and it will affect nobody, so it's fine. Another one is no one will know, and this one is particularly close to does God know? Is there knowledge amongst, amongst the Most High? Uh, in the Most High, sorry. So uh, what I want to say here is we're not enticed by these actions themselves. Like no one, I don't, I don't think any student writes an exam and thinks he needs the thrill of cheating in the exam and cheats for the purpose of cheating. What we're, what we're interested in is the outcome, the easiness at the end. So when we, when we think about cheating on an exam, we want the good grades or lesser work. When we think about evading taxes, we want more money or lesser work. When we think about uh, reducing our workload in our, in our, in our work, in our job, so we want the same money or less work. We want to do the least possible to get the maximum. So we, we, I think we really envy prosperous and easy life as compared to the difficult one. And uh, I think such thinking also bleeds into our religious things. Now, uh, I'm making this distinction just for the sake of clarity. I don't really like talking about a secular life and a religious life, but just to be clear in, in what I'm talking about, I will make that distinction. But uh, I will just say that Bible says in all things we do, we are to glorify God. So all things are for God. But just to be clear, um, I think this thinking also bleeds into our religious things. So uh, think about it. Attending church and uh, attending Bible studies, meeting up with other Christians. So what is, what is the temptation there? Uh, I've had a lot of, lots of friends who would ask this question, just not out loud, but consider this. What benefit do I get when my friends go to that party on Friday night, or for some of you older men here, fishing trip or something else? Right. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what, what ladies do. I have no idea. Right, so what, what benefit do I get when I go to church on Sunday or a Bible study on Friday evening when my friends, they go to a party or fishing or or, or all of those things. What, what is the benefit that I get in sacrificing that? And uh, another thing I thought was, what about sexual purity before marriage? Is my secular friend losing out 
or is it me who is losing out on this so-called exciting experience? Essentially, what we say is this. I will be doing the good thing in vain. There is no comparable benefit to me in being chased or in attending church or in paying all my taxes, in being honest to the government, to, to people around me, because the person who does the opposite things, the person who does the wrong thing, he doesn't visibly suffer any punishment. I mean, in fact, he achieves the same thing or a better result for, for doing less. And I only feel the burden of doing the right thing and that right thing goes eventually unnoticed and unremembered and unrewarded. Even worse, it is rebuked by the world as backward or stupid of all of those rebukes. And this is what the psalmist says as well. The wicked are free of care, they amass wealth. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. And eventually that only resulted in me being stricken and rebuked. <clears throat> but Asa sees the problem in his statement. So he understands that there is something fundamentally wrong with what he, has con what he has concluded. So in verse 15 he says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. That is, if I had concluded that this really was the case, I would have betrayed all of your people, all of God's people, and I would have led them all astray by this obvious false conclusion. At the same time, though, he is not able to come to the correct conclusion by his own understanding. He finds it impossible to put together all these observations and experiences. God is good, but the wicked prosper, and that they do by perpetrating wicked deeds. His knowledge and his understanding see this only as a paradox that cannot be put together. And he is unable to arrive at a conclusion that is both biblical and, uh, and true, and, and something that he can apply to his life. So in verse 16, he says that, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And then he becomes wiser, he discerns something. And all of that happens in just one verse, just a single line. But that line is, I think, the most important line in, in this psalm. So it seemed a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And, you know, Asaph has given us very little to go on here. He went into the sanctuary of God, and then he discerned the end of the wicked. So the sanctuary then is that place where he got this knowledge, this, this understanding, this discernment. And what is that place? So the place sanctuary, it can... Uh, it's used in the Old Testament to refer to the heavens, the tabernacle, the temple, sometimes Israel, sometimes Jerusalem. What is common in all these places is that these places are referred to as places where God dwells or where his presence and glory are found. So we can conclude that the sanctuary is a place where God dwells. And from context, we can understand that Asaph went to the tabernacle because as I said before, he was a worship leader in the tabernacle. He was appointed by David. And uh, I believe he is talking about the tabernacle here. So, he went to the tabernacle. And then what happened? Did he receive special revelation from God? Did he meet God there? Did God speak to him there? I don't think so. If, if that was the case, I think Asaph would mention that. So, uh, those of you that were present for... Uh, the series of sermons in Exodus, maybe you remember we did 
we did see the tabernacle there. Uh, God gave very specific instructions to Moses for constructing a tent called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And uh, this tent would serve as um, a place where God could meet with his people and actually also dwell among his people. And if we had a tabernacle today, uh, I, I've, I've put up some, uh, some words together so I can give you that experience, even though I myself do not have a first-hand experience. So firstly, you would go through a outer curtain and you will walk into a courtyard. And uh, once in the courtyard, you will see several slaughter tables on, on both sides. And, uh, and it's also quite likely that you will see many animals of varying sizes, from pigeons to large, large cows. And uh, it's also very likely that you will see lots of slaughtered animals. There will be lots of blood. You will also see in the middle of it all, there will be a bronze altar. And again, quite likely that you will see an animal that was sacrificed burning on that altar. And further on, you will also see a bronze basin, which is used by the priests to wash themselves before they put on their priestly garments and go ahead and do the sacrificial rites. So what would all this communicate to the person entering the tabernacle? I think it shows in excruciating detail the consequences of sin. It shows very clearly substitutionary atonement. That an animal has to die in your place for your sin to be cleansed. For your sin to be forgiven. The Bible says there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. It also says the wages of sin are death. And that animal will die in the Israelites' place. So when Asaph saw this and understood this, he says, I discerned their end. I discerned the end of the wicked. They do not have an animal to die in their place. How the animal's life ends will be the way their life ends. So he then explains in verses 18 to 20, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So their life on earth is set on a slippery place, and eventually they will fall to ruin. Their destruction is instantaneous. He is no longer talking about their prosperous life on earth. He is, he is talking about the eternal outcome of their wickedness, of their arrogance. He says here, O Lord, you despise them as phantoms. So the NIV that uh, I believe Alice read the NIV, and that, uh, that version, that translation uses fantasies, and some other translations use outward show and fleeting forms in place of phantoms. So God despises them as fantasies, or God despises their outward show, or God despises their fleeting forms. And uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult verse to understand, but uh, I've got here two possible meanings. One could be that their entire life is like a dream that they will eventually be forced to wake up from and face the reality of God's judgment. That is one. And another one is that once a person dies, they are a memory in people's heads. They, they could be images. 
And uh, that word phantoms is related to that image. And God even hates those. Despises those. And um, I think it... Basically, it says the unrepentant sinners, they are rejected by God, even in their afterlives. Their death does not pay for the wickedness that was perpetrated. Just to give you a parallel in the New Testament, uh, in Luke chapter 12, there's a parable of a rich farmer. He had a plentiful harvest, extremely lots of, lots of food that he harvested, that he had to tear down his barn and build a bigger one. And then he says to his soul, um, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God tells him that night, Fool, this night your soul, your soul is required of you. The things you prepared, whose will they be? It's a, it's a stark reminder given by uh, Jesus to people listening to him that life can change instantaneously. That destruction comes in a moment and you are quickly swept away by terrors. So are we any different from the wicked that are mentioned here? Uh, in envying the wicked, I think we too are wicked. Or maybe some of you here are, are thinking, you know, I've just been wicked. Well, good. The first step is to acknowledge our sinfulness and our wickedness to God. And Asaph here is doing the same thing in verses 21 to 22. He says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I think that is by, the pros- by looking at the prosperity of the wicked, I was senseless and ignorant in coming to that silly conclusion. Then he says, I was a brute beast before you. And uh, often the word brute beast or animal is used to refer to that sinful nature of, of man. And here he's saying, I, I was a brute sinner. I was, I was a bad person in your eyes. So uh, to understand the next verses, let's go further into the tabernacle. We only saw the courtyard and uh, over there already the consequences of sin were quite horrid. They were quite bloody. But there's a greater thing that we can understand once we get into the tent. So once you're in the tent, you will find that there are two rooms. And uh, the innermost room, which is called the most holy place, is separated by a heavy curtain. That place is called the most holy place because that is the place where God's glory dwells. God is enthroned in that room. He, He speaks to his people from there. His law goes out from there. His judgment goes out from there. But that room is separated by a heavy curtain and no one can go in there except the chief priest. And that too only on one day each year. So there's, there's a separation. Once you go in that, that will be right there in front of you. That you are separated from God. And sin brings that separation. And I think that is the greatest consequence of sin. The worst consequence. That we are separated from God. And a sinner cannot be present in, in God's presence. Because God's glory And his holiness will destroy the sinner. But in verse 23, Asaph says, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. So how is that possible? It is made possible by the tabernacle itself. It is a way by which 
God could exist amongst His people despite the separation. So, uh, well, what about us then? We do not have a tabernacle. I mean, we have three consecutive rooms in our building, <laughs> but it's it's nowhere near the structure of the temple or the tabernacle. The measurements are not precise. The materials are not there. And what about the sacrifices? What are we going to do about that? Well, thankfully, in the New Covenant, there is no longer the necessity for a temple building or the sacrifices, thankfully. These practices, even though they provided a way, they they provided a solution, a temporary solution, uh, for, for the people to be in God's presence. These were not the ultimate solutions. They pointed to something or rather someone greater who would come and fulfill all these promises and that is Jesus Christ. So he claimed to be the temple. He said, uh, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He was referring to himself. And uh, John says in his gospel, the word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt amongst us. So, okay, Jesus is the tabernacle. He's, he's fulfilled the promises. So what do we then conclude from this psalm? The tabernacle is fulfilled in Jesus. I have accepted Jesus. So if you've not, you have to. You should talk to the pastor later. Um, so I've accepted Jesus. So I ought to be happy that I'm not like the wicked. They will be judged, but God will save me. Thank you, God, that I am not like the wicked. <laughs> that, that is what the Pharisee said. <laughs> Thank you that I'm not like the sinner. So if I said that, 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 if I concluded that, I would betray all of you. So take a look at Asa's conclusion in verse 25. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. After looking at all these things, after discerning the end of the wicked, he does not come to the conclusion, thank you God that I am not a sinner, that I am not wicked. His conclusion is, God, you are my greatest treasure. And that is what he urges us to do as well. Make God, make eternity with God our greatest treasure. The pearl of great value, the field with a hidden treasure. Sell everything else and buy those things. Hold on to God. That is what he is concluding. So you might have taken the narrow road. You might have sold everything and purchased the pearl of great value and that field with a hidden treasure. You might have taken hold of uh, the kingdom. You might have accepted the gospel. But you will be tempted and maybe even persecuted to take a diversion and get on the easy way. You will find it difficult, maybe in doing the right thing repeatedly despite everyone else going in the wrong direction. Uh, And maybe you will find the difficulty in persecution. And so Asaph gives a word of encouragement in verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But many Christians today, as that survey found out, have rejected God. Because that is easy to do. They'd rather accept the values dictated by men than defend God-given values. So what about us? Would we defend the truths that God has given us on matters such as marriage, 
on the sanctity and the value of life, on creation, or would we rather be compliant so as, so as not to be called backward and stupid by the people around us? What about the gospel itself? Are we ashamed of the gospel? Or are we able to say, like Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Are we able to share our belief in the gospel with anyone who is asking us, or also just sharing the gospel to, in our workplaces, in our universities, to our friends? We can't have the cake and eat it too. If we'd like to spend our eternity with God, we cannot be ashamed of God right now. So James, in his letter to the church, he asks, he asks us to be joyful in our trials. Many times in his letter, he says, It is better and it is blessed to be poor than to be rich. Essentially, he says, do not covet the possessions and, and the prosperity that the rich have. Uh, rather, be joyful in your difficulties. I was, I was, when I was preparing the sermon, I, I thought it was going dangerously close to a works-based gospel. And... Uh, I was thinking, how can I, how can I make it clear that take the narrow road is not a gospel of works? And I think this is a good place to ask that question. Is take the narrow road a gospel of works? Is the difficulty just that we have to keep doing good things and hold on to the gospel, not be ashamed of it? So if, if that were the case, if this was just a gospel of works, I think... Uh, James would then just be saying that in our difficulties, we just don't talk about it. What about when we truly, truly experience something horrible? Crippling debt, the loss of a loved one or, or a family member. What about persecution to the point of death? Does the Bible just say we should, we should just say, ah, it's all rainbows, sunshine and butterflies and, and keep denying that the problems exist? And just say, I am a joyful Christian. What about when we feel that God is absent in our circumstances? I mean, it is, it is a lie from the devil himself that God is absent in our, in our circumstances. But we do feel that. And I think uh, that is why take the narrow road is not a gospel of works. The difficulty is not that we have to do the good things. But the difficulty is that we are constantly tempted. And we can't just push on by working. The difficulty is letting go of our claim on God's throne. And instead trusting God. That is a difficult thing to do there. Letting go of that throne. And we can feel God is absent. We can subscribe to that life from hell. Because in our nature we are depraved. And even as Christians we will envy the prosperity of the wicked. And we will be tempted always to take the easy road. But in all this, Jesus understands us. Because he is the one that said, take the narrow road and not the broad one. Right? Because he precisely understands that we feel one is easy and the other is difficult. And we need that true sanctuary. We need to, leave, we need to lift our eyes and fix it on Jesus. We need to go to Him daily. It is not a one-time thing. Every day, every moment, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus.
the founder and perfecter of our faith, as the author of Hebrews has called him. And on those days that you feel that God is absent, that he has turned his face away, that life is extremely difficult, it's depressing, what do you do? Well, I would advise you to just tell that to God. Pray and ask him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, you will realize, or you must realize, that those words were spoken by Jesus. And that separation from God was truly experienced by Jesus. He was truly forsaken by God when he bore all our sins. Exactly because we don't have to. So that you can be confident that God does not turn away from you, but rather his his gaze is upon you with grace and mercy. He, his, his face shines upon you with grace and mercy. So when we lift up our eyes and, and see Jesus hanging on the cross, we see the disgusting nature of our sins, and we see the only just man, the Holy Son of God, suffer and die. Once and for all, for the unjust. He is the sacrifice for our sins. And no greater injustice has ever happened. No one has suffered greater injustice. But in, in achieving that atonement for us, he also shows us that he has suffered injustice himself. And when we lift up our eyes and see Jesus hanging on the cross, we are healed of our depravity. Well, the fact that Jesus died and the fact that God raised him from the dead should strengthen our faith and our hope despite the present difficulties that we, we will face. The road is narrow, yes. It is filled with difficulties, yes. And the broad, easy road looks extremely attractive, also, yes. But we have a great forerunner. He's gone in front of us. He went before us not only to show us the truth of God's promises, not only to just finish that run and just sit there on the sidelines and cheer us on. But as the psalmist says, he holds our hand and he gives us counsel and he will finally receive us unto glory. So, I just want to finish by saying do not be, be like my voice. It starts strong and it fades. Don't, don't be like that. You start it strong and trust, continue trusting in God that he will hold your hand that he will give you counsel and he will take you through that narrow road. And finally, he will receive you into glory. Amen.